One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Join us for a journey as we go back to the great civilizations of the past. Who were the people? What were they like? How did they begin? And how did they end? Let's find out on this special edition of Fan of History. Hey everyone, this is a special episode. We have uh, someone who I'm a big fan of. I've mentioned in the podcast, Gary Stevens from History in the Bible. He's in Australia. I'm in Scranton, Pennsylvania, and we're podcasting together. And um, we're going to talk about podcasting in general. And we're also going to talk about history. And who knows where this might even go. I, I hope everybody enjoys it. Good day, Bernie. How you doing? I'm doing great. It's um, May. We're still in the coronavirus pandemic lockdown. I'm 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 locked down in Scranton, Pennsylvania, and I know you're locked down in Australia, right? In sunny Sydney, Australia. Awesome. Where it's delightful weather to be locked down in. Oh, well, that's a good thing for sure. Uh, so I guess I would say, I imagine podcasting in general is uh, something that keeps keeps other people busy and keeps you busy right with your with your website and your and your um, podcast yeah uh, in fact i invented the podcast to keep me busy you invented the podcast in general wow i didn't know you were the inventor <laughs> of the podcast i can't claim that but actually i've seen the guy who invented the term podcast really he, he was a, yeah he was a journalist oh he still is a journalist for the guardian british journalist he came up with the term and i've seen his photo he looks like a Victorian explorer about to discover the source of the Nile. Amazing. He has the biggest handlebar moustache I have ever seen. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. So now, uh, I invented my podcast ah. to keep me busy. And because my whole life I've been interested in the Bible and Christianity and Judaism to an extent. And I thought, well... Um, I can clarify my knowledge by by teaching others. Mm-hmm. I used to be an academic, and I've I've always found that the best way to learn something is to be forced to teach it to others. 
because yeah. that's where you find the holes in your knowledge. Because mm -hmm. I often sort of say in the History in the Bible podcast, I've read an argument by someone and I say, oh, yeah, that's uh, very convincing. Got to include that. And when I come to write the script for the show and go back to the argument and I'm trying to convince my listener of this argument, I often go, mm, no, that doesn't really hold water. This sounds silly. Yeah. So, so yeah, being, being forced to actually go through it yourself and expound it yourself, it brings a criticality, which you don't get just by, say, reading or listening to something. I definitely agree. And I learned that, luckily, being able to do this podcast with Dan, who invited me to do, that, do it with him. And then instead of just being a fan of history in general, I get to do the actual research and I have to know what I'm talking about, not like I'm sitting on a bar stool just trying to you know, impress some girl about the, how much I know about the Assyrian Empire. Yeah. Do you find any frustrations in doing the research? Yeah, I um, I do, because our podcast, one of the biggest thing, hardest thing, the, I should say it's very interesting and difficult for me is that we our podcast goes one decade at a time. So sometimes things are okay to date and sometimes they're not. So if I try to do organize the podcast, the episodes chronologically, sometimes you can't. And a lot of history that you read, um, unless you're like way into the primary sources, which I do use too, but you know, if you're reading a historian, they'll talk about things over a big period. You know, like oh, this happened and then 20 years later that happened. Well, that's not going to do any good for me. You know, they only mentioned something that happened in 651 BC for a second and then they're talking about something else. So oh, I that's that's one of the challenges of doing it that way. Okay, so the sort of slice of time approach. Um, what you feel like you're cutting threads, which which historians who don't use the, this approach would maintain. Right, and, and there's sometimes I will find arguments, like you find arguments, and it'll be about dating something, and then, holy cow, you know, like you said, these some of these academics they'll go after each other with scissors, <laughs> literally. Yeah, running at each other with scissors. Yeah, and you're, you're you're reading through pages and pages of the, you know dating the death the death of Gyges. That's what I'm going to be dealing with in the 650s is the death. Oh, that's a spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> but he can't live forever. So, but no, we don't know exactly when he might have died. So there's all this. There's you know one person says this and one person says that. I mean that's how you go down a rabbit hole. And I try not to go down that rabbit hole in the podcast because that would be super boring. Yes, if, particularly if the arguments are very esoteric. You're right. And and I, I think for people like us, because we're not historians, we're just buffs. Right. There's only so far we can go before we get lost. Right. I, I think. And the, the highly technical arguments, there's been one or two papers that I've come across which seem to have an interesting thesis. But then they're quoting like slabs of ancient Greek and arguing about <laughs> tenses. Right. And I just think, no, nah, you've lost me, mate. I can't, you know. I think about that a lot, just, and also since listening to your podcast, and I think that in some way, I think it's necessary that those people exist and do that because that's how they really, you know, hammer that out. But it's, it's a, what I really like about the podcast format as a person listening to podcasts is 
I want to get some good history and some good information. And I do want to hear the different sides because there's nothing worse than, you know, watching like a YouTube video or history channel when it used to be even okay. I mean, they just tell their side of the story and you don't realize there's another literally a side of the story that, you know, you could be wrong. So, if, you know, you get both of them. But like you said, when you go down into the weeds, holy cow. And I think maybe one other issue that we have is that um, it can be difficult to know what the modern consensus is, because maybe, you know, you've just read stuff by a bunch of wackaloons. Mm -hmm. Especially for what you're doing. Well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's a hard. I, I really appreciate your podcast because I've look, been looking for this information just personally myself. You know, who are these people? Who are these people in the Bible? But when you look up historians and things, they could have a, you know, they could be, like we said, they may be like a, if a Greek historian or archaeologist was digging, looking for proof of Poseidon and Hercules and Heracles and Odysseus. Yeah, it, it, exactly, in the field of biblical studies. And it's, um, it's a bit hard to believe how recent it is. Biblical studies... Actually, you know, going around Palestine and digging up things, that only really started in the 1930s. Now, Europeans became interested in the archaeology of Mesopotamia in the early 19th century. Uh, the 1840s example is the time when they first managed to decipher Egyptian hieroglyphs. And Europeans, who could then get into the Middle East, started looking for ancient civilizations which had been mentioned in the Bible. But no one really knew anything about them. I mean, the Bible made clear that the Assyrians and the Babylonians were big, important players. But they were just names, just names. And so through the 19th century, archaeologists managed to get into the Middle East and they started coming across artefacts from these civilizations. And they came across huge numbers of them through the 19th century. And it, it was like a whole new, it, well, it was, it was literally a whole new world. It opened up to European and American archaeologist buccaneers. It's really amazing, yeah. I mean, it must, must have been so amazing at the time for the, all these discoveries just coming one after another. Oh, absolutely. And I know that uh, a lot of these archaeologists, they constructed beautiful printed editions of uh, tablets and uh, the bits of um, sculpture and the ruins. And they were bestsellers, absolutely bestsellers. Yeah. Uh, and they were a marvellous thing. And it was like, but the general attitude was, oh, look, we've discovered all these things from the Bible. This is great. Yeah. We, we know so much more. So Mesopotamia was pretty well known by the year 1900. It had been well documented. Uh, Egyptian hieroglyphs have been deciphered. Some of the languages, I think, Akkadian uh, of Assyria and Babylonia was, was being deciphered. We're making tremendous inroads into that. What had not been studied was Palestine, the actual oh. place where, where the Israelites lived. And that's, because, and that's because there wasn't anything exciting in Palestine. There were no, <laughs> there were no great ruins. There were no cities to be uncovered. I mean, Jerusalem was a living city. Well, hey, it's there, right? But um, Babylon wasn't a living city. Right. So it, it was unexciting. And it was only in the 1930s that uh, archaeologists actually turned 
to Palestine slash Israel slash Canaan, whatever you want to call it, and started investigating. And one of the, one of the first of those was a British guy called John Garsting, who was operating in the 1930s. And he decided to investigate what he believed to be the site of Jericho. Sure, that's one of the oldest cities in the world too, right? Yeah, yeah, it is. And he started digging. Now, that itself was important. Digging wasn't something which the, the people in the 19th century had actually done in a systematic sense. They had basically gone by what looked like a rubbish tip. And then they just started bringing in 19th century bulldozers and tipping everything out and going, ooh, look at that. <laughs> in the meantime, smashing up a pot or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Smashing up everything inside. Right. Look at this beautiful statue and just smash up a pot. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Smash up the pot. What are those funny markings? Yeah, forget that. <laughs> we, need the, we need this big head we found. Ooh, yum. <laughs> right. Whereas Garstang decided to drill down and conduct a systematic investigation without destroying things, and go through the layers. Oh, he was one of the first then, or was he the first? Uh, he wasn't the first. The, the very first was a guy called William Flinders Petrie. Uh, and I think he worked first in the 1920s. And to show how actually recent he is in inverted commas, when my mother went to school, her ancient history book was written by William Flinders Petrie. Wow. So, so, and Petri was the one who really started the systematic study of uh, stratigraphy. He came up with the ideas of, for example, a top layer is going to be younger than a bottom layer. Now, that seems obvious, but it wasn't obvious at the time. Sure. And he, he worked out, oh, look, this looks like a burn layer. Things have been burned here. Uh, and look, and there's another layer underneath that, and we find this and this and this. Uh, and Garstang, I suppose, applied Petri's techniques to Jericho. And he dug down and he found all these layers. And he came across a characteristic burnt layer. And apparently to archaeologists, it's quite obvious that that's what's going on. Uh, and you find not only burnt timber, but you find fired pottery, uh, uh, as opposed to sun-dried pottery. Okay. Oh, oh, I see what you're saying. So it was, right. I, all right. Yeah, it was burned in the fire of the destruction, not that it was... It wasn't, it wasn't sun-dried and it wasn't burnt in a kiln because apparently if you burn a city down, the temperatures get a lot higher than in a kiln. I always wonder how they burn down these stone cities. That's still a kind of amazing. I guess there was a lot of wood and then the stone caught on fire too. There must have been a lot of um, wood. And stone becomes very fragile under heat, a lot of it, and it will fracture. Right, right, right. So it must have been a lot of heat. Yeah, so it must have been a lot of heat. I mean, even, even, well, even steel becomes incredibly weakened by fire. Correct. So yeah, he, he decided that he'd, eventually he'd come across the, the Jericho, which the um, Hebrews had destroyed. Now, one of the things about Garstang was that his whole aim was to, to find the Jericho that the Hebrews had uh, destroyed. He was trying to demonstrate that a certain historical fact was true and could be demonstrated. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What do you think? I, just, just, just what do you think? Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. that so they were looking for troy in the same way but not in a religious way well no no uh, as you said uh was it schleiman yeah i think he's the one who found troy right but he he wasn't trying to d- show the existence of um uh, zeus and i don't think he was even looking for the you know the existence of uh, uh ajax and hector and ulysses Right, of course. You're just looking for the the fabled city because nobody believed it existed. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. No one even believed it existed. So I think from the start they were skeptical of the legends. I just like you know I think about that kind of thing sometimes too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But from the very beginning, archaeologists in Palestine were determined to show that the archaeology backed up the history in the Bible. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, this movement was pretty much led by American evangelical. Mm-hmm. It's sort of weird that way. It is. It is. Particular religious groups seem to get a handle on things and then monopolize them. So in the case mm-hmm. of the early archaeology of Palestine, it's American evangelicals. In the case of the Dead Sea Scrolls, it is French Catholics. Yes, I remember your episode on that. It was very interesting. Yes. I mean, I guess if if the if the if the Edomites and the Moabites had a religion, then somebody'd probably be out looking for them. But because they didn't, nobody's looking for them as much. That, that that's very true. <laughs> that's very true. Yeah, if we if we still had Ammonites around or whatever, yeah, they'd be looking for their origins. There, there's nerds like me who are probably still look, would be looking for it. <laughs> um, well, there's still people looking for Noah's Ark, aren't there? That's, yeah, that's the thing. So there's still people doing that. But anyway, yeah. through, through, the ni- <laughs> through, through the 1930s, archaeology of the biblical lands came to be dominated by an American called William Foxwell Albright. Okay. And there's no, Albright was, he was a really smart man. He managed to learn several ancient languages, like Ugaritic. Amazing. And, and Hittite. He... He founded several research institutes. He founded entire journals, let alone write for them. He founded them. And he dominated, and he, he published for 60 years until he died in 1971. 
and he utterly dominated the field. You simply didn't contradict Albright unless you unless you feared unless you you know wanted a short lifespan. I think there's schools in my city named after Albright, and I know you get an Albright scholarship, and that's a famous thing, right? Oh, I've heard of that. I should never actually associated with that with a man. I must, I must be him if he's, you know. And there's, yeah, there's like a Albright schools, and it's definitely a, he's definitely a very honored scholar. So there's no doubt he was smart and he knew what he was doing, but he had a really strong agenda. Like Garstang, he was committed to demonstrate that the archaeology he was digging up completely accorded with and vindicated the accounts in Genesis and Exodus. And that was the aim. Basically, if the evidence didn't fit the Bible, you threw out the evidence. Oh, that's not nice. (laughs) And in fact, I'll give you some examples from the period. I've got a book I bought years ago called The New Bible Dictionary. It's a whacker of a book. It's 1,300 pages. Hundreds of articles written by hundreds of, they seem to be mainly British and Commonwealth scholars. It was first published in 1962, and it was reprinted at least 10 times until my edition in 1974. So it was obviously considered a sound uh, scholarly resource from 1962 onwards. Mm -hmm. And one of the articles in that says, in the article on Abraham, it says, As a result of archaeological discoveries, the life and times of Abraham, as recorded in Genesis, can be shown to accord well with the recent knowledge of the late and middle Bronze Ages. Wow. Albright and Roland DeVoe place Abraham between 1900 and 1700 BC. Many of the customs observed by Abraham have been compared with evidence of these same customs at Nuzi. Now, first observation, that name, Roland DeVoe, he was the guy who led the Dead Sea Scrolls Consortium. Oh. And, and basically hid the Dead Sea Scrolls from the rest of the scholarly community. Yeah, boy, I read, listened to your, article, your, your episodes on that. I was getting, wow, that's a great story you told. Oh, well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. But yeah, I mean, until I did the research, I didn't know it was anything like that. I didn't either. I, always was, I was always learning about the Dead Sea Scrolls. So funny, because on one of my last podcasts, I call them the Red Sea Scrolls. I had to go and like <laughs> say at the end of the podcast, sorry, Tom Bernie. But when I was in college in the 90s, in 19, well, I graduated in 1990, I think, 91. They, they were like, like, well, someday we'll know what's in the Dead Sea Scrolls. I remember. You know, I would read that kind of thing and think, well, I don't. And then I realized how long they were had and then how... You explain how once they got out on the internet or somebody got a copy of them, it was like, yeah, we all have it now. It basically had to be stolen from them in some ways. Yeah, unbelievable. Such a treasure trove of information. Yeah. Anyway, I, as usual, I digress. Uh, now, the second point is, the passage I just quoted mentions a place called Nuzi. Okay, now, Nuzi is a city in northern Mesopotamia, in what would later become Assyria. And back in, I think, the 1930s or 40s, they dug up hundreds of tablets, uh, which were mainly routine legal and business documents. And they seem to be based around one single family through six generations. Oh, yes. Okay. A a trading or merchant family. And it's got all their 
training stuff. And the Nuzi texts, which, which were dated about 1400 BC, seem to lay out laws and transactions and all that sort of stuff, very similar to the patriarchs. So people like Albright said, look, wow, this great site, Nuzi, has all this stuff which vindicates what we're thinking about the Bible and archaeology. So that, that was the standard until, until Albright died. The general consensus was that all the evidence we have vindicates the biblical picture of uh, the patriarchs. Maybe not the precise details. I mean, we can't prove right. that a guy called Abraham lived. But certainly the lifestyles and the dating, it all fits. So do you think he thought, and obviously this is your opinion, unless you know more, do you think he thought that, you know, these guys lived all these years and, that, you know, his wife Sarah was 90 years old when she conceived? And you think he thought that kind of stuff? Or do you? You know, that's a good question. Did he think that? You know, because I mean, I'm, I was raised Catholic and I, you know, like Jesuit priests are very scholarly, but I'm pretty sure they look at the Bible as more of a moral story, not to take things literally. Yeah. I mean, I mean, my impression of Catholic scholarship is that it is much more, what would you call it, uh, liberal than, say, Protestant scholarship. Yeah. yeah I think Catholics. Yeah, like the Jesus, I'll be quite happy to say, no, of course, Abraham didn't have a child when he was 110 or something. No, of right. course, that didn't happen. <laughs> Whereas the Protestants go, yeah, Sarah, 86. Everyone, any woman can have a kid at 86. Sure, anytime. <laughs> and they, they may live to 863 also. Yeah, also. <laughs> oh, anyway. Yeah, so you wonder if how much did they believe and how much, you know, what they were looking for. Because it sounds like you're saying is what we found was that he thought he found and then we'll go take it from there. But that this is the way people lived. And there was some sort of a patriarchal exodus. And I shouldn't say exodus, not the right word, but coming from Mesopotamia and going into Canaan. And he believed that his archaeology proved that. And Albright, I mean, he didn't say, oh, Abraham, you know, was born in the year. He, he, he put big brackets on it. He said, OK, I'm pretty sure he lived between 1900 and 1700. So, so he probably didn't believe any of the stuff about, you know, Sarah giving birth at the age of 86 or whatever. But he thought he'd established a, a good framework for the whole thing. After he died, that all started to, to crumble completely. People started looking at the evidence, looking at the archaeology, and it just didn't seem to match. In particular, after Albright died, Archaeologists finally managed to get into the Sinai, I think it wasn't until the 19, early 1980s, and, and started digging there. Because until then, you know, it had been pretty much a battleground between Egypt and Israel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought I read somewhere once, too, where they said the Israeli government gave the archaeologists the keys to the kingdom to find everything they could. You know, find the Exodus, find Dave, King David, find everything. Oh, I see. For obvious reasons. Yeah, yeah for obvious reasons. Uh, and also what started happening after Albright died was that instead of looking for big cities like Jericho or what's under the temple in Jerusalem and that sort of thing, a new generation of archaeologists started conducting field surveys. They weren't looking for David. They weren't looking for big cities. They just pegged out a, a bit of ground and started digging. And okay. that hadn't been done before. So they, they went 
fairly methodically through the, Can the Canaanite highlands, uh, which is near the yes. River Jordan, and through bits of Israel. I think I remember watching somewhere, too, where they just went out in the field and just picked up potsherds, like just, you know, tons of students, you know, just graduate students, and just pick up tons of them over area and then, you know, make pot, you know, put them together. Yeah. Uh, and they were interested in things like what was the population density here at a certain yeah. time? What sort of bones do we find here? You know, are, are there pig bones, for example? Yeah. And it turned out in some locations there were. Mm -hmm. uh, so they started doing that sort of thing. Totally different archaeology to the, um, oh, let's find a big buried head of David. And if we find Asherah, we're going to hide that. that uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was an embarrassment. Because they found a lot of these little Asherahs. Uh, and, and Asherah was a Canaanite goddess. And they found them all through uh, what was the northern kingdom of uh, Israel and even through the southern kingdom of Judah. Dated right through to well, past King David's time. Right. And, and these sort of embarrassments didn't please anyone except the people actually digging them up. Because the presence of, for example, these little Asherahs seemed to indicate that there was a, a female goddess worshipped in Palestine slash Canaan slash Israel at the time that the Israelites were meant to be running the joint and were good monotheists. Right. So all these little pieces of evidence uh, and from the population studies, as they went through uh, the, puti the putative locations of, for example, the various cities supposedly destroyed by Joshua, I think they found... Two out of 20, which fitted maybe the chronology. The others, no. There was just, there was no evidence whatsoever. These things existed at the time of either the Exodus or Joshua or the Patriarchs. And in fact, all the evidence seemed to suggest that all the towns and cities written about in the Bible, um, well, sorry, through the Old, Old Testament, the early part of the Old Testament through to Judges, were Iron Age cities. Now, the Iron Age is the time of King David at its very beginning through to the two kingdoms. So the authors seem to be writing about cities they knew about, which simply didn't exist. So basically, from, from 1971 to modern times, the, the traditional consensus collapsed, and it is now firmly believed by everyone except some really old people. Yeah, I remember just, yeah. One of his, one of Scott, one of Albright's uh, last um, people is still alive, I think, one of his accolades or his disciples, right? Yeah, yeah. There's one, there's one guy called Kenneth Kitchen, and he wrote an article in this new Bible dictionary that I've got in 1962. He's a British academic, former professor of Assyriology, University of Liverpool. Kenneth is still alive. He's 89 years old. And he still says all these, you know, all these juvenile delinquents, these youngsters who are in their 50s, they've got it totally wrong. The Bible is completely right. Well, maybe he can go find himself a wife and have a baby. <laughs> <laughs> but people like Kenneth Kitchen are, as far as I can tell, quite rare, except in, what would you call it, conservative evangelical. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and, and possibly in Orthodox Judaism. Yeah. Although talking to some people, Orthodox Jews also have a fairly, um, well, they're not bothered about the historicity 
of Genesis or Exodus mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Well, you think they would be, but they're not. They go, okay, if it didn't happen, it didn't happen. In the Bible, it's a very good moral. It's like there's this moral, well, if you really, not all stories are very moral, but there's always some sort of a lesson that they're trying to teach in it, which is, I guess, it's, if you use it as a holy book, is how you should look at it. Because even like what you were saying before, there's someone, and I'm going to pronounce it wrong, I'm the worst of pronunciation, is it anachronisms? That would be like if I made a movie now and, I don't know, put something from a different time in it, right? Like if I made a movie, say I made a movie about the 50s and then I had a guy with a cell phone. Yes, exactly. And there's there's a lot of that, in, in especially in Genesis. And I went, did, do we know how Albright dealt with any of that? In part, he didn't know. So one of the biggest uh, anachronisms is that in recent times, it's become fairly clear there were no camels in the Bronze Age used for, used for transport. The earliest evidence we have comes from after the time of King David. But that's only been dug up fairly recently. So I doubt that all, I doubt that Albright would have known that. Okay. And, and Albright just wasn't into digging up bones in little obscure places. He, he wanted to dig yeah. up big cities. It reminded me of another one. It just reminded me when you said that about the camels. I was listening to one of your episodes. I think it was about Joseph going into um, Egypt, right? And then he made some kind of deals, and then he did some kind of deal where every, nobody had any money left, right? Is that right? Do you remember? something? Well, So there was something like that where Joseph, when there was a famine, and he went in, he did, made some kind of deals, and there was no money. Well, there was no money until the 600s BC. There was no such thing as money. That's a good point. Yes. Right? So if they say, well, there, nobody had any money. Well, nobody had any money. No, it hadn't been invented yet. They didn't have any cell phones either. Right, right. It's like he picked up his cell phone to call, <laughs> call it an airstrike. On, on, <laughs> he tried to call it an airstrike on a city, but wait a minute. That's an anachronism. So, so that's the general situation today. And the whole orientation of uh, the misnamed field of biblical archaeology, because, mm-hmm. because uh, as we've said, it's, it's like talking about the archaeology of Britain and calling it Arthurian archaeology. Right. Yes, you said that. Yeah, but unfortunately, the term is quite embedded, and it's not about to change. Yeah. Well, I mean, we, Dan does, does likes this. Uh, do, we do say that there is some some of the stuff in the Bible is, you know, there's a historical basis in it. And sometimes we find out, we we're, we're surprised later, right? That, oh, that was actually true. I mean, a big one is that we covered is the siege of Jerusalem, which is in the Bible. And that was, um, you know, I don't think the angel of death necessarily came and killed all the Assyrians in the night. Is that Shalmaneser? Uh, that was Sennacherib. Yeah. So Sennacherib and he... And there was a there's a there's a poem the destruction of Sennacherib by I think it's Byron from the early 1800s destruction so you know the angel of death came at night and saved the city Jerusalem and it's the Egyptians also have a story that little mice came at night and chewed all the leather off all the Assyrians bows and the chariot uh, straps and things like that so they couldn't shoot their arrows. So, well, they're great little stories, right? They're great stories. Um, so yeah, so you don't know, I guess, like some parts of the, you know, we could use the Bible as a reference, 
I guess to try to prove it backwards, things like I could I mean, I'm from two all over the place, but the, the story of the flood is so interesting in so many ways because so many civilizations have a flood story. So was there a flood? That's a, that's a good question. I mean, uh, one theory I've read is that um, the flooding of, I don't know if it's the Tigris or the Euphrates or both, mm-hmm. massive flooding did occur often enough, you know, maybe once a generation that it became embedded in consciousness and was passed down as the story of a, a great flood. Yeah. There's another theory that is actually tied to, oh, geez, uh, a Stone Age flooding of, what's that huge lake in Russia? Just Yeah, I know what you're thinking. I watched that. There was a huge lake. It could be the Black Sea. Yeah, it could be a yeah. huge, something like that. The Caspian Sea or the Black Sea, something. They say you could have busted open and just really deluged everything. Yeah, yeah. It's um, even if it's not true, that's a great theory. Uh, right. And then I did also. I saw one one time because they say there's floods. You know, there's flood myths all over the world that maybe and maybe they'll find this someday and 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 we'll be look listening back on this years from now that maybe an asteroid hit the planet and made a big tsunami all over the world. Oh, that's a possibility. Yeah, somebody had some information, you know, some studies on that. Or it's probably possible, probably how probably most of these stories happen. They just sat around a campfire, campfires, which are caveman TV, right? Because you could sit and watch a fire, can't you? And somebody probably sat around and started telling a story about this big flood and then, you know, just kept talking about it. Yeah, and it just became preserved in memory. You know, yeah. when when great great grandpappy survived the great flood of whenever. Yeah, tell us that story again. And it's just sort of like um, you know, they lived eight hundred years because you needed that many years to sort of a literary trick. Yeah, I um, actually it seems, it seems to have been quite common in the Middle East. Actually, I was reading the early Sumerian king lists, the ones where of the the most ancient Sumerian kings. They make the biblical uh, antediluvian <laughs> guys look like youngsters. You're right. Because I, I think, you know, the first th- three, four, five kings of Ur or something are given lifespans of something, you know, 10,000 years. Something on rage is like 28,800 years or something like that. I do feel like it's a literary trick because then the China wasn't the yellow emperor of China. He was a couple hundred or thousand years of an in ruling or alive. Oh, was he? I'm pretty sure, yeah. I feel like this is how I. Um, you know how one of my favorite podcasters is um, History on Fire, Danelli Bellelli, and he always brings up the Princess Bride in his podcast. So most very often I bring up Anne Rice novels in my podcast. So if you're playing Bernie Bingo, you, that you get an Anne Rice. He brings up Anne Rice again, and she does a lot of history in her pod, in her novels. But the vampires and the people they live. For hundreds and thousands of, you know, hundreds of years, thousands of years. And I feel like that's a good literary trick because if someone had a normal lifespan, they, she needs that and to tell the story. And I get the feeling sometimes those, that's why the people in these old stories live so long because you kind of need them to, to, you know, to be around for this long era. That's just my theory. Or maybe they lived that long. Oh, yeah. My father used to say, I think they just kept a track of the years and different then. <laughs> like he would say, like, if you lived to 800 years, that was like 800 months. Oh, I see. 
Yeah, he thought that like maybe they they mistranslated it or something. Oh, okay. So it's on the order of like um, every day is a thousand years in God's eyes. Or yeah, like, like dog years or something. But I, I guess like you know, usually this scholarship and I'm studied it and that doesn't seem to pop up at all. <laughs> no, uh, and I think I mean the rabbis when they were collating the lists of the antediluvian people. Look, I I always find this happens when I'm. I don't know how how you and Dan work, but Steve and I, I I always do incredibly comprehensive notes. We prepare an agenda, yeah. points, everything will go through, and it all falls apart after ten minutes. So that's awesome, though. I do listen to some of you guys together. You guys are funny. The one with the, you guys were doing Satan with the uh, um, Satan was the the prosecutor or the defense attorney, I forget, and then with Samson is hysterical. You could tell you guys were all cracking up laughing. I mean, no, I'm such a nerd that I could, you know what I mean? We just laugh at these things, but I really, it was funny. Oh, so I'll tell you how Dan and I do it. Dan, so Dan is, maybe even you, Dan is um, a professional podcaster, super smart. He has, I think, 12 podcasts. Most of them are in Swedish, yeah. This one in English, and it's his first one, so it's a labor of love, and I enjoy doing it like crazy with him. And he's got a great speaking voice. And he, or I write a script, so to speak, with notes. And I'm, we've only done a few, so I'm, I'm still learning it through. So we usually get about four episodes out of one discussion. So, so, and I, we've done the six eighties. We did the six seventies and the six sixties. So we just did it three times that we actually, you know, were talking. So I write it and he goes through it and then I learned to, Sometimes just try to shut up and let him say the things because he just has a better speaking voice and the pronunciation is hysterical. Like I can't pronounce and he'll say Shama Shuma Uken and he says it perfect. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't think it's even Shama Shuma Uken, like, you know, Semiticus, these names. Yeah, it'd be easy if they were Greek or Latin, wouldn't it? Oh, my God. Maldak. Balador and stuff. It's, it's, we, we do it. I enjoy, I do enjoy doing it with them though. So, um, so you, you, you have a, I always wonder, like, you do it by yourself. I mean, you, you have to get on the mic, have your script and do it. And you really sound like you are talking to another person. You really do. Well, I'm glad you think that. Um, that's purely an accident. Do you have, um, broadcast experience? No. Really? Correct. Honestly, like, it sounds so natural when I started listening to podcasts. And it is funny how you'll listen to some podcasts, and when they first start, they're a little stiff and nervous and scripted. And then as they go, they get a little more natural. But I was, yours was like right from the start, like, this guy's a pro. Well, maybe that's my academic background coming out. Yeah. Is this the only podcast you had? Did you have one before? Oh, yeah. Well, believe me, it's I, I could only handle one at a time. But did you do other podcasts? Uh, do as in produce. As in produce, yeah. No. So this is your first and your only one at the time. Yes, and I'm running out. Uh, uh, I realize that, yeah. Yeah, and I don't know what the next thing will be. Well, actually, um, I'll be taking a six-month break after, after I get to the deaths of Paul and Peter, and I'll do that so I can do the research, even though I've already accumulated a couple hundred pages of notes. I'll still take a six-month break and come back in 2021. Uh, but it'll only be a few episodes, and after that, I have no idea what I'm going to do. Really? Hmm. 
Well, fans, what do you think? Should Bernie and, and Gary come up with some kind of crazy podcast? He's the organized one. He writes up all the notes. <laughs> he's got perfect. He's a good speaking voice. He doesn't say I'm in the aisle all the time. His mic works. And then you have me who crams it in at the, you know, at the end so I could have it. I forget things and I can't pronounce well. So I'm really, um, really pushing a good, uh, really making a good pitch, huh? <laughs> oh, no, that sounds like a good <laughs> idea. We could, yeah, we could do a joint podcast. Da, da, da. <laughs> all, we, yeah. all we need is the topic. Yeah, all we need is a topic. Oh, we think of some. Have a history topic, right? I suppose so. All right, yeah, I suppose so. All right, well, we'll, we'll put that on there. We'll put the, send us your suggestions, people. Yeah, you any, your any, podcast. yeah, any suggestions that you like. Yeah, I do think the podcast format is a really good way to learn stuff because, like we were saying, that you know, there's all this scholarly information, there's all this details, and then to read it is tough. You go on a TV and you watch YouTube videos, you know, they're like 15 minutes. You really get a whole, I mean, just think of how many hours is your podcast on the Bible. That, that's true. Uh, and I often find the visual stuff, I mean, if you, if you look at, say, something from, yeah, like the History Channel, the visuals are often just wallpaper. Yeah. And the actual information content is coming through the voice, and it's not that much. Yeah. It really is, and they could, and they could say, and, and and a lot of it is, um, the real, and it's one version of the history in a lot of ways, and it's the real, I don't know, vanilla one, you know, where the, where if you're doing the Roman Empire, it's pretty much Gibbons, you know, whatever he thought it was, and I forget who wrote Alexander's original history. I had a class on Alexander the Great in college, and right. the original guy was, you know, he basically his thing was that Alexander conquered the world to spread. Greek civilization, which is not true at all. I mean, no. I mean somewhat. Yeah. But. Or, or, or if it's a television show about the Bible, it'll be about some controversial, amazing discovery like the Gospel of Jesus' Wife. Ta-da! Yeah, right. Something like that, right? And it'll, it'll either turn out to be a fake yeah. and, and not interesting. Right. Or it can turn out to be the opposite. It's something which astounds the average viewer but it is perfect academic consensus for 60 years. Right. Or worse, it could be told BS, which is that really aggravates me, where it's, you know, the aliens made the pyramids. Yeah. People listen to my podcast. They know our podcast, I should say. They know that drives me nuts. That would be a good one, Gary. Debunking the ridiculous theories of, you know. Oh, hey, yeah, that's a good idea. Pseudo history. Ridiculous theories in history. Oh, wow. Yeah, because they just say they always if if I if I was to make up a story about a Jabberwocky and I presented it in such a way that it sounded like I was knowing what I was talking about, it would sound right. (laughs) So that's how they do it. Like, well, you know, this they wrote this and then this alien did that. And this is why there's no way they could lift a stone. And okay, well, I always say if you were an alien, you came all the way here. Why don't you just build it out of steel? Why don't you build it out of stone? (laughs) You have interstellar travel, but you've got to use rocks. Right. Come on. I mean, I imagine you could smelt iron and make steel if you could do that. So, I mean, so anyway, um, and I think they might interest a lot of people because this is why I started, you know, listening to your podcast to try to find out these these things like who were the Israelites? Like, where do they come from? Was Abraham real? Like, why do they talk about Abraham? You know, when did they write these books? There's just so much in there. And, and I think it's also like 
kind of like quantum physics, though. The closer you get to it, the weirder it gets, and you can't really figure it out. <laughs> yeah. I was actually looking at a uh, some video. A simple explanation of quantum entanglement. It went on for fifteen. It went on for fifteen minutes, and he lost me at about minute six. And he was trying real hard. Yeah, I mean, it is fascinating. I'm interested in that, and I just can't. I try, and it's so difficult for me to wrap my brain around it. It seems to me that's the sort of discipline where, quite literally, words fail you. And the only way you can describe it is in the sort of mathematics you need to spend four years at university to attain. Yeah, true. I do think that the analogy is accurate in a lot of ways with history, though. Almost like in like a point to list painting where you'll step back and you look at it and you, okay, I got this is right. Like the decades, the, the ages, that kind of thing. Yep, we know this. We know that, you know, there wasn't monsters walking around in the 600s BC, right? But then when like the closer you get, it just gets you you learn, you see the details and they're fascinating. And then you'll never know. We'll never know exactly what was going on in a person's mind at that exact time. And, you know, we'll never get it exact. And and for periods as ancient as we're looking at, particularly with the early episodes of your show, in some cases, we can't know if the people actually existed, if they if they if they did what they what it's claimed that they did. Uh, and as you've no doubt sort of come across uh, records of, say, certain events, which we have records from both, say, Egypt and Assyria, mm-hmm. then the records can be quite different. The Egyptians yes. will say, ah, we want them good. Right. And the Assyrians will say exactly the same thing about the Egyptians. And you're going, hmm. Exactly. And that's a big question I have, and I wanted to ask you, and just what you think. Why, why do you think they, is you know, Israelis and Jew and Jew. Why do you think they told these stories about, you know, conquering Canaan and stuff when it just seems like when they were written, nobody would, how can anybody believe they were true? Everybody, they, they just sound to me like the guy who says, oh, you should see that I beat that guy up on the street and seven guys try to jump me and I beat them all up. But like everybody knows that they didn't conquer that whole place. Like they were a small vassal kingdom of the Assyrians. Well, I suppose by the time that all these stories were actually written down, which would have to be the, yeah, six hundreds, say, that had just disappeared into history. Um, and, and all they knew is, hey, we're here. Yeah. We've managed. We've got the Assyrians over there, big bad buggers. The Egyptians down there, okay, nice buggers. Uh, the Babylonians there, but we're here, so there must be something going on. Ta-da! It, it may have been as simple as that. But, of course, we don't have the stories from the Edomites and the Moabites, as you said. Right. We don't know what they were saying because they aren't here anymore. Right. True. And I guess the language thing, too. Just people didn't, everybody didn't speak and everybody didn't read and write either. So if you told, you know, if I, you told me that this is how it was, then you just believed it. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, even today... So you'll tell somebody a literal fact, and at least in this country, and they'll say, oh, that's fake news. Huh. So imagine in those days, you could say, oh, that's not true. I guess. Just always seems to me like, didn't they think you were going to get caught? This is such a big whopper, <laughs> in my opinion. I suppose another example might be, say, um, Japan at the very end of the Second World War. Apparently, um, just before the Japanese surrendered, the emperor 
went on radio, which he'd never done before. And he spoke in a weird court dialect, which is quite, hmm. which is quite unknown to most Japanese. Hmm. And he said, basically, the war has not gone entirely to our advantage. Oh, really? Yeah, you don't say. Yeah, you don't say. But that might have struck most Japanese at the time as, really? There's something gone wrong? Right, and they didn't even know, and this is a modern, so we're talking about, you know, where you, you couldn't, you lived within 20 miles of yourself for the most part, if you're lucky. If you got any further than that, you, were, you might not even go that far, I should say. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's, and even just what you're saying about the wars of um, Germany after the World War One, they said, you know, they had that famous um, the stab in the back. We were winning the war, but they stabbed us in the back. We would have won. Just another week, we would have won. Yeah, right. So I guess it's a lot easier to, in those days to just make up. I shouldn't say make up, but, you know, sort of embellish. Embellish. And I suppose the stories are used to construct identity, aren't they? And, and That's what they are, right? That's really what it's really. I think that really sums it up a lot. It was. And, and honestly, it, the Bible worked for that, didn't it? Well, it worked brilliantly in the, right. in the end. Um, yeah, it worked brilliantly. And uh, it's still used as a uh, a solidarity builder for Christians, isn't it? So you can have Japanese Christians are able to identify with American Christians. I don't think it was meant for that, but that, no. not the Old Testament anyway. <laughs> the Old Testament, I should say, surely wasn't meant for that at the time. No, it wasn't. It is a fascinating piece. That is, I guess, the thing that reading, uh, sort of say, listening to your podcast and then studying it and then doing the podcast on the time period I'm working in now in the 600s BC. It's, um, damn it, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. I guess it's it's a I wanted to say it's a fa it is a fascinating piece of literature. Oh, it is. You know, it really is a fascinating and I and I wish it was studied more as a fascinating piece of literature than trying to pick it apart and say was this guy real or not because like I would say, you know, you, nobody reads Homer and tries to determine whether or not Achilles and Odysseus and if there was a cyclops you know, it's like you just don't try to figure that out. You're just reading it for what the literary value that it is. And they think, and it's funny because I was over the weekend. I had a, my young daughter's only in sixth grade, and I had to help her do a report for on Aphrodite. Oh, really? It's like, yeah. So it was, you know, and it's just like the, the story. You know, Aphrodite's like fertility goddess of Greece, also in the Middle East. It's like the Middle East and the Levant, especially, obviously. Their religious and spiritual ideas came, went to the West, and the West, the West's, you know, scientific and those ideas, you know, sort of, we live in that. Like, in other words, we live in the Greekish, you know, our medicine, our science is Greek, yeah. but our religion is Middle Eastern. That's very true. Probably, like, no kidding, Captain Obvious, right? <laughs> uh, until you say it, it isn't, it isn't obvious. Yeah, I mean, that's what kind of struck me that I was like, oh, the Greeks have, you know, she's doing Greece and the Greeks have all these letters and, uh, you know, words, I should say, and all of the things that come from Greece. And we have the law that come from Greece then through Rome and we have all this. And then we have our religious life, our spiritual life. The major religions of the world are, you know, come from this, the Middle East and specifically the Levant. It's really pretty interesting. Yeah. 
like if we were aliens, there's like the Dan Carlin. He always has to bring up aliens and his things, right? So the aliens were looking at us. They were like, you see this little area over here, their religious area, you know, they're their religious um, influences. And then this area over here was their science influences. That's true. Well, who was it who said that, um, I think it was St. Augustine or something? Is Or no, <laughs> or, or it could be Bertrand Russell, who said that... Um, uh, Western civilization is built on the twin foundations of Athens and Jerusalem. Well, see, I'm as smart as that guy. Then. <laughs> there you go. Or at least I figured it out on my own. I never heard him say it. <laughs> Someone said it. Somebody said it. Well, then I guess, it, you know, it was in the same kind of thing, it was we, we were talking about the archaeologist. I, I mentioned that to a friend of mine uh, and I said to her that and I said, you know, no one was ever looking in Greece to find to find Zeus in that. And she said, well, that's because they're not real. And I said, that was my point. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was like, obviously they're not real. Okay. Well, we rambled a lot here. We're going to wrap this up. I hope you guys enjoyed this because I would like to do more of these. So I thank you very much. Um, thank you very much, Gary, for podcasting with me and everybody should definitely check out history in the bible podcast and how about your website you want to give us your website oh yeah uh www.historyinthebible.com and i have lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of maps charts and diagrams which you can only communicate visually and they supplement the podcast magnificently i could not have said that better uh, and I'm sure you'll be hearing a lot more from Bernie and Gary in the future. Yes, I hope so. And yes, I will definitely attest to those maps and stuff on his website. I mean, in your website, there's no ads. There's nothing. This is literally a labor of love for you. So I I definitely recommend to anybody that's interested in biblical history, Middle Eastern history, that kind of thing. You should definitely check out. And you're hysterical, too. <laughs> okay. Well, sometimes it's hard to be funny. When you're talking about these things, I might just be the biggest nerd because I catch your humor immediately. I'm people, I'll be like listening to my headphones or something and just bust out laughing. And people are like, what are you listening to? I'm like, a podcast about the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm literally cracking up like the, some of the things you say just cracks me up. Well, I have to inject humor into it somewhere. You are definitely, you have a very dry sense of humor, but it's definitely hysterical. So any intelligent people who can get dry humor and want to learn about the Bible should definitely check out History in the Bible podcast by Mr. Gary Stevens. So, so long, guys. So long. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon, patreon.com slash fanofhistory. Just a dollar an episode would help us out. Thanks, and see you next time.